Welcome to Todd Talks, where my guest today is Dr. Jim Dennison. Dr. Dennison is a cultural scholar, pastor, and author, as well as the co-founder and chief vision officer of the Dennison Forum, a Dallas-based nonprofit that comments on current issues through a biblical lens and worldview. Among other things, Jim, who's been a friend for over 20 years, writes a daily article email newsletter that reaches more than 240,000 readers per day. Additionally, his podcast, The Daily Article, is downloaded more than 80,000 times each month. Jim, thank you for making the time to talk with me amid your demanding schedule. Todd, it's my privilege to be in this conversation with you. I have been so grateful for your scholarship, your wisdom, your leadership, your friendship over these many years. And when you reached out to invite us into this opportunity, I just was thrilled. So thank you for this privilege. I'm looking forward to our conversation together. Jim, let's begin by allowing me to ask you to share with our viewers and listeners what the Denison Forum is mm. and what prompted you to launch this ministry in 2009. Well, thank you for that. Our ultimate biblical calling is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and the specific part of that that we think is ours is to help Christians use their influence to change the culture with the glory, to the glory of God, to use the influence that God has entrusted to them in a way that can impact the culture, engage with the culture in a proactive, redemptive way. You and I both know a lot of folk in more the evangelical or uh, conservative wing of Christianity that are engaged in cultural issues, but in more of an adversarial sort of a spirit or of a culture warrior sort of an approach. And I'm not here to discouraged necessarily in that space, but we think our calling is to teach people to speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says, to use their influence in a redemptive, positive way in the context of the issues of the day. So really my personal story, very briefly, goes back to my father. Dad was very active in church, fought in the Second World War, and never went to church again. So I grew up in a loving home, but no spiritual life, all my dad's questions, got invited to church at the age of 15, eventually came to faith in Christ through that, still had all these intellectual questions, uh, my father's issues, if there's a God, why is there war, science and faith, evil and suffering, dad had his first heart attack when I was two, died when I was in college, so I just grew up with all what we would call apologetic intellectual issues, someone gave me C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity in high school, changed my life, as is true for so many people over these years, first time I'd seen anyone deal with faith intellectually. So from then till now, my passion has been engaging in intellectual and cultural issues with the good news of God's love. So went to Southwestern Seminary, did a PhD there in philosophy, religion, taught on that faculty for several years, thought I would do that the rest of my life. And then God called me into pastoral ministry, pastored four churches over the years. And then in 2009, some very gracious friends at our last, last pastorate gave us the opportunity for me to do full-time what had always been my passion of speaking biblical truth to cultural issues. And so in 2009, we launched Denison Forum for that specific purpose. We have this daily article that you mentioned and uh, the website, the podcast, the videos, the speaking events, all of that designed to equip people to use their influence for Jesus to advance the, the kingdom and the culture. And so this coming tsunami is just one expression of that larger narrative, that larger call that God has had on my life for many, many years. That's tremendous. Jim, that's helpful. Um, Jim, you, you read and you write and you speak a lot. 
we mere mortals uh, look from afar and we say, how in the, how in the world do you manage to do this on an ongoing basis, day after day, week after week, year after year? I mean, wh what is it um, about this call on the one hand and then the discipline to execute this call uh, on the other? How do you manage? Well, thank you. That's a very gracious question. It truly is a very, very kind question. Uh, if my wife were on this conversation with us, she might have a different answer to your question than I might have. Uh, but I'm glad you're talking to me in that space, right? And so uh, really, I think it's on two levels. Uh, on the one level, there is a gripping, there is an intensity to this that I'm sure a counselor would actually take back to my father and to our, uh, to my life growing up. Uh, Todd, uh, dad, as I said, had his first heart attack when I was two, died when I was in college, lived 19 years on borrowed time. Um, and we just knew that somehow, you know, we never talked about it as a family, but every morning mom would wake up and look over to see if dad was alive or dead. And so there was just an intensity to time for me uh, that I've, I guess I just always had. Uh, don't really trust the future quite so much, I guess you could say. And that just has always been part of me and also a drivenness to reach people like that. Some years ago, we were moving boxes up in the attic and uh, mom had lived with us or we'd been supporting her for a number of years and had some of her stuff up in the attic. And one of the boxes needed to be repacked. I found a painting in this box up in the attic of some kind of an island scene, didn't know what it was. Ask mom about it. There've been, my dad was one of 300 people stationed on this island in the South Pacific. Only 17 survived. One of the 17 was a painter. He painted 17 paintings of that island scene, gave one to each of the survivors. What I had found was my father's painting of that island where he had been for three and a half years. So I have it at home, in my study at home, hanging over my computer where I can see it every day. And it just kind of reminds me and I think in so many ways, my passion is to reach people like that. It's to help people that are in a space like that. That just has always kind of driven me yeah. in a way and uh, drives me still, even in this conversation today. And then the other side of it is I've had some wonderful mentors over the years. I've been blessed to pastor churches with very successful business leaders. And over the years, as I've been able to work with and be blessed by them, I've learned some things about discipline, some things about time management, that sort of thing. And so I get up at 4.30 every morning uh, and get started in that context. I have some wonderful team that edit with me early in the morning as we make changes to the daily article as necessary and that help me with the process of it all. And then, Todd, we have a wonderful team in this organization that really frees me just to do content. Uh, we have people that really run the organization on a daily basis that manage our five brands. I'm just one brand as the Denison Forum piece of the larger Denison Ministries here. And so I have flexibility and freedom here. A pastor wouldn't have that you wouldn't have in your setting with uh, your leading of one of the most significant theological institutions in the on the planet. You just wouldn't have the same time, the bandwidth just to devote to content development like I do. And so I'm just blessed to have the time to do this, to have the team I have to do this with, and really have a passion to do this. It gets me out of bed every morning. That's tremendous. Um, redeeming the time, Jim. Mm. Redeeming yeah. the time. Well, Jim, um, I really want us to focus our conversation today on your soon-to-be-published book, The Coming Tsunami, which has been subtitled, Why Christians Are Labeled Intolerant, irrelevant, oppressive, and dangerous, and how we can turn the tide. 
mm. picking up this idea of cultural engagement, Christ transforming culture, offering a winsome witness. So Jim, let's take a tour of the book, mm. um, which has three, four chapter parts. And let's begin by asking you to share with us, what is the book about in general? And what gave rise to it? I mean, what was the fire in your bones that says, I have to write this book? Mm -hmm. No, thank you for that. As an author yourself of so many books, as you know, there has to be something in you that makes you do this, right? Max Lucado said, writing is like giving birth to barbed wire. <laughs> and in his usual winsome, rather picturesque way, I think he's right about that. And so, if you're going to do this, usually there's a reason you're doing it. And uh, what's gripped me and really led to the creation of the book is something that, for those that don't know me, is going to sound like rabbinic hyperbole, is going to sound like uh, some attempt to sell a book by being sensationalist or something like that. It's categorically not the case. But, Todd, I am convinced that conservative, evangelical, biblical Christians, whatever you want to call us, are facing a rising tide of opposition that is unprecedented in American history. Now, I've not said those words until I got into the preparation of this book and now on the other side of it. I wouldn't have told you that a year ago or three years ago or five years ago. That's not some tagline for our ministry. That's not an attempt to sell books. That's not sensationalism. I'm genuinely convinced that this is where we find ourselves. That's a cultural moment, I believe, where we find ourselves. So I use tsunami as the model for that. We're not familiar with tsunamis here in Texas very much. If you're on the Pacific Rim, you're familiar, but we know in principle what they are. It's a massive tidal wave, typically caused by underwater earthquakes you don't see that causes the tidal wave you do. An example is March 11, 2001, when an underwater earthquake 45 miles off of Japan's coast caused a tsunami, an earthquake that killed, or a wave that killed nearly 16,000 people, uh, destroyed 120,000 structures, $235 billion in damage, underwater earthquakes. I believe there are four underwater earthquakes, two of which are more obvious than the others, that together are creating this cultural moment. And so that's the first part of the book is to identify those four earthquakes. The second part is to look at the tsunami itself, its consequences of this. So we talk about the Equality Act and, and beyond the Equality Act, we look at woke business, we look at medical issues, healthcare issues, I serve as resident scholar for ethics with Baylor Scott and White Health. And in that space, I'm very interested in medical ethics. So there's a chapter devoted to that. Then the third section is how do we redeem this moment? I believe God redeems all he allows. So how can we redeem these earthquakes? How can we redeem each of these in principle in a way that honors the Lord, advances the kingdom? So the tsunami is just kind of a metaphor for this belief that biblical Christians are facing a tide of opposition for which we need to be getting ready and redeeming right now. Valuable overview. Jim, let's now uh, look at uh, the uh, parts that together make up the whole. Uh, in part one, as you've noted, you identify four earthquakes. Would you name these and elaborate a, a bit upon them so as to set Probably. the stage for what you do subsequently? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and again, very briefly, of course, the first and second will be much more obvious than maybe the third and especially the fourth, as you know. The first would be a denial of biblical truth, uh, a post-truth culture. Now, we can go back 
have conversation about this. You'd go back to Immanuel Kant. You'd drive that through Nietzsche and Derrida and Foucault and postmodern movement. Uh, but without all of that, the book does that. But without all of that, we're at a place I think people would understand this post-truth culture. Oxford uh, University Dictionary is named post-truth, their word of the year in 2016. It's just conventional wisdom that truth is personal, individual, and subjective. By one study, 92% of Americans say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. Well, that makes the Bible the diary of religious experience. It means that if I tell you, you have to believe the Bible, I'm forcing my beliefs on you. I'm being intolerant, which is the worst thing you can be in a postmodern relativistic culture. So the first earthquake is a denial of biblical authority, of biblical truth. The second comes out of the first, and that's a denial of biblical morality. And now we're thinking about the sexual revolution that we think of in the 1960s. You really go back to 1953 and Playboy and pornography and move it from there. But in the legalization of birth control in 1960, Helen Gurley Brown's book, Sex and the Single Girl in 1962, LGBTQ activism, the Stonegate riots in 1969 and so forth. Uh, this movement in the 1960s to say that sexual repression is bad. That goes back to Freud and Wilhelm Reich and the idea that we ought to have personal sexual authenticity and biblical morality is outdated, irrelevant, and oppressive. And so this move says not only that biblical authority is on some level outdated, it makes it intolerant. And those of us that follow biblical morality are intolerant as well. The third earthquake is the rise of critical theory. We're very familiar with critical race theory, which is an application of it, and it's a long conversation, but in principle, it looks at the world through a Marxist prism that sees us in classes, and I bring it into this book just to make the point that according to critical theory and majority class, like white Christians, are by definition an oppressive class, by definition. Now, we can unpack that and talk about what that means in terms of critical race theory and other applications, but it basically is the posture that says that Christians are oppressive by definition, by category, and by class. The fourth earthquake, one that is not as obvious in conventional culture, but something that you and I are seeing in the academy, is a rise of a secular ideology, of a radical authenticity that says that personal authenticity is the path to flourishing, and if you disagree, your religion is bigoted, narrow-minded, homophobic, and dangerous. We now know that religion flies planes into buildings and causes 9-11 and clergy abuse scandals and spends money on buildings instead of people and heaven instead of earth. So there's a replacement ideology. Robert George at Princeton's talking about this a good deal these days. This rising secular ideology that says that if you disagree with where the culture is going in terms of tolerance in place of truth and uh, sexual morality being whatever you define it to be and uh, critical theory, then your religion is dangerous and it must be replaced. That kind of encapsulates the other three and accelerates the tsunami on a level that's unprecedented. So the bottom line, not ever before in American history have Christians been seen as oppressive by definition as dangerous to society as a class. But that's where we are today. That explains the Equality Act and woke business and a lot of other symptoms we could talk about, but that is the moment where we find ourselves today. Which serves as a suitable segue to part two of the book, Jim, where you raise and respond to four related questions. So here are these earthquakes creating this tsunami mm -hmm. and you then frame up some questions and respond to them. Take us of a tour of those. 
You bet. So the fifth is very obvious to us that are following the news, the Equality Act and things like the Equality Act. Um, very briefly said, the Equality Act amends the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. But what makes it especially part of this conversation, as you know, it expressly forbids any appeal to the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So what that means in principle is that if you're in a faith-based organization, you're in a church, you're in a seminary, you're in a parachurch organization like ours, and you're found to be discriminating against an individual, LGBTQ individual, let's say, on the basis of sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, you have no right to do that on the basis of your religious beliefs. You cannot claim religious freedom to do that. That to do so is like a KKK member claiming religious freedom exemptions to burn crosses in front yards. Quick example of that. I was doing a consult with a board of trustees of a Baptist university here in Texas a few months ago. We were working with a person from Alliance Defending Freedom who has a specialty in this space. And he explained to that board of trustees this way. Let's say you have, for instance, a transgender student who wants to play on your women's volleyball team. You refuse to allow this person to do so based on your religious doctrines and your statements. She files a lawsuit. The judge issues an injunction. If you don't obey the injunction, somebody goes to jail. That's the practical outcome of the so-called Equality Act. My unwillingness to do a same-sex marriage is seen in this light in exactly the same way as if I would not do an Asian wedding or an Hispanic wedding or an African-American wedding, that we are discriminatory and dangerous to LGBTQ individuals in particular and the culture in general is the tsunami resulting from the earthquakes. So there's a whole chapter there specifically on the Equality Act itself. The sixth is beyond the Equality Act, where we look at other threats that are similar to this. For instance, you may remember last March when Oral Roberts made the Sweet 16 in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. There were editorials in USA Today demanding that the NCAA bar Oral Roberts from participation because their student handbook was so homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory, and dangerous. The NCAA could ban Baylor from participating in its programs or Dallas Baptist University where I serve on the board tomorrow if it wanted to do so. It's a private organization. There's a movement, as you know, right now, it's called REAP, a Religious Exemption Accountability Project, filing lawsuit against Baylor and 24 institutions claiming that you are discriminating against LGBTQ individuals by virtue of your student handbook and your other sexual um, orientation to sexual activity policies, and therefore should not be allowed to receive federal funding for student scholarships. Well, that could apply to 200 schools going forward. 501c3 becomes in question, Pew Grants become in question, all sorts of government support for uh, students at religious institution come into question. So things like that get into the sixth chapter beyond the equality. The seventh looks at woke business, more than 400 businesses that have signed on to support the Equality Act. We talk about the degree to which businesses have during Pride Month every year align themselves in such a proactive way in a way that is intended to target our children in ways that can be indoctrinating relative to LGBTQ activism and ideology and all that's in that. So we look specifically at woke business. The eighth chapter looks at implications of this move in the context of healthcare. Everything from abortion, one way the Equality Act can be read would guarantee the right to abortion without appeal to religious beliefs for faith-based organizations like Baylor. It could apply to euthanasia 
or what's being called physician-assisted death. It could apply to sex change surgeries, gender affirmation therapies, as they're called, with again, no appeal to religious beliefs. And so there's a whole eighth chapter that looks at healthcare. In this context, we look at uh, uh, genomics, uh, which is to me a fascinating conversation to discuss what's happening right now with genetics, uh, genetic research and so forth. We look at chimeras, we look at uh, what's happening in that entire space and look at the applications of this move in that context. So Jim, given this picture, uh, which is, um... Uh, not untroubling, uh, mm. in, in indeed bleak uh, in some ways. Um, are there glimmers of hope? Mm. Uh, what, what might be done? I, I mean, do we throw up our hands and quit? Do we retreat into a, a corner? Never mind uh, access that which we've done, we've not done in a corner. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, in part three of your book, then you, you offer counsel. You, you offer encouragement, you seek to raise and respond to the question, how then shall we live? Mm. Offering a winsome witness in this cultural moment. Lead us through this last part of your book. And then Jim, I wonder if you would pivot and take us to a pastoral moment, perhaps um, a final thought and then conclude us uh, in a time of prayer. Happy to do that. And again, thank you for the privilege. Uh, being able to do this and unpack this with you, my friend. I am honored by this conversation and delighted to do this with you in this way. So it's always too soon to give up on God. And we know that. You can't reverse a physical tsunami, but uh, God is still on his throne. He is still king of kings. He is still Lord of lords. None of this surprises him, right? And so in the third part, we're looking for redemptive ways to respond to this. In the book, we talk about Richard Niebuhr's classic book, Christ and Culture, and the five ways that church and culture have been related to each other. We could take a Christ against culture model here and pull back and try to be almost Amish, as it were, and try to withdraw from this culture, which keeps salt in the salt shaker, keeps the light under the bushel basket. We can do a Christ of culture move and go where the culture is going. And we're seeing that with some of our denominations. We're seeing that with those that are so-called changing their minds in this space and so forth, which to me is a tragic thing, but we're seeing it. We could do that. We could do a Christ above culture, kind of Sunday versus Monday sort of an approach, which would be unbiblical. Christ and culture and paradox would engage the culture to grow the kingdom but not really trying to be transformative per se. So I'm, I'm arguing for that fifth model, that Christ transforming culture model, where we are trying to be salt and light in a redemptive way, knowing that the light always defeats the dark, that it doesn't take much salt to change everything it touches. So how do we do that? So the ninth chapter looks at the denial of truth and equips us to be able to respond redemptively to that denial. We look at the assault on truth in a variety of different ways. We look at it logically. To say there is no such thing as truth is to make a truth statement. To say there are no absolutes is to make an absolute statement. It fails practically. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, does that make the Holocaust just Hitler's truth? Is 9-11 just Al-Qaeda's truth? And so we unpack all of that. On the 10th, we look specifically at the Equality Act, where it is right now, what can be done about it, what influence can be brought to bear, how can we respond to that? We look beyond that and what that means in the sexual morality space. We look at ways to be redemptive in the context of LGBTQ activism, to speak the truth in love, to not take an adversarial position that condemns the other. To understand, Todd, we're all broken sexually. Heterosexual sin is sin just as much as homosexual sin is. 
I've pastored four churches. We had a number of staff issues over those years with moral failure, never homosexual moral failure, always heterosexual moral failure. So let's understand we're both broken here. We're beggars helping beggars find bread. Let's adopt a posture of loving engagement rather than condemnatory, accusatory sort of adversarial approach. As we get to the 11th chapter, we're looking at critical theory, and I'm arguing for a way that the Christian movement is seen not as oppressive, but as redemptive. We have to be on the forefront of civil rights across the board. We were in the 60s, as you know, it was ministers like Martin Luther King Jr. who were leading the civil rights uh, revolution. So how can we get there again and be on the forefront, demonstrate the loving compassion of the Christian witness? And then on the 12th, how can we demonstrate that our religion is not dangerous, but indispensable to society? Practical ways. We can use our influence individually and collectively to that end and to that good. I believe in James Davison Hunter's book, To Change the World, the idea that we change culture top-down, achieve your highest place of influence, live there faithfully, calls it manifesting faithful presence, and God will use your salt and light in redemptive ways you may see and in ways you may not. I believe it was Alfred North Whitehead who said, great people plant trees they'll never sit under. And that's this moment where we can move in that direction and demonstrate that our faith is not dangerous, but redemptive to society. So if I were to say something to pastors, I would add this thought. We are familiar as ministers, as all of us would be, but especially in our context of God having a geographical will for us. You know that I believe that it was God's call on my life to move to First Baptist Midland to be pastor there when I did that, then to Atlanta, then to Dallas. We have that sense of God moving us, this Macedonian vision, sort of a God called you to where you are. We know that to be true. There's also a chronological sense to God's call. It is by God's providence that I'm alive right now, not 100 years ago, not 100 years from now if the Lord should tarry, but right now. Meaning this, if you're a pastor, a faith leader, if you couldn't be useful now, you wouldn't be in the now. If God couldn't use you where you are and when you are, you wouldn't be where and when you are. So recognize you're in Jesus' hand. Nothing can take you out of his hand recognize that he will bless, use, empower, inspire your ministry in this moment. Recognize that you have the privilege of living in one of these hinge moments in history where you and I get to join the Holy Spirit in birthing what I pray is a fifth great awakening in American history and culture. That's the privilege and the opportunity of this moment. So let us use the challenges we face to cause us to repent once and for all of self-sufficiency. I often say self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. Let's recognize human words can't change human hearts. You and I can't convict anybody of their sin. We can't save their soul. We can't change their lives. But the Holy Spirit can do that through us. Let's every moment, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Every day, start by surrendering to the Lord. Give Him our ministries. Give Him our calling. Trust Him to use us in redemptive ways and know that He will. So if I could, let me pray for you and for us as we trust God with this moment where he's called us. Father God, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the privilege that is mine of partnering in just this way with Dr. Still, with Truett. I'm so grateful for them, Father. Bless them this day. Use them, Father. Propel them. Make them even more effective in the coming years in this moment. 
help them to understand that they are here for such a time as this and bless them in all that they're doing in these days. Father, I pray your blessing for every person hearing this conversation. Father, on the one side, make us realize the gravity of this moment, but on the other side, encourage us with your grace, with your peace, with your presence and your power. Make us men of Issachar who understand the times and therefore know what we must do. And then in that moment, Father, raise us up and propel us, use us as catalysts for the awakening we need for the spiritual movement that is so necessary in these days. Bless pastors especially, Father. Encourage them and their families and their ministries with the enormity of their call and the privilege of their service. And use this conversation even in that way to encourage them where they are even right now with your presence, your power, and your grace. So, Father, we submit all of this to you all of this in your hands. You are King of Kings. You are Lord of Lords. We say you are our King and our Lord, and we make this our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jim, thank you so much for your ministry, for your friendship, and for your time today. So grateful to have had this conversation.